Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the Vintage Matches Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson, flying solo again today. On each episode of this podcast, I will pick a sporting event from history and examine it through today's lenses. This is the last episode in a series of podcasts looking back on the history of the UEFA European Championships, better known as the Euros. We're going to try something a little bit new on this episode. Every other one of this series, I've picked a match from each Euro, starting with 1960, going all the way to up to 2012, our last episode, which uh, my brother Austin joined me as a guest. And we kind of focused on one match or one or two matches and then kind of talked about those as like the middle portion of the podcast. And then I did kind of an intro setting up the Euros and then a, a postmortem kind of wrapping it up with our five categories that we used to talk about at the end of each episode. And we're going to keep the five categories for this one. But because Euro 2016 is so fresh in my mind and it's a tournament that I had this kind of very strange personal history with because of some stuff that happened in my life at the time, um, I'm just going to kind of go through the matches instead of focusing on one match. And I'm actually just going to go through the matches on like a little Wikipedia guide and kind of tell you kind of where I was at e while watching each match and then overall thoughts on the tournament and uh, you know, who stood out and different things like that, some goals that were memorable and just kind of like what was happening in the world at the time as this was going on. Um, so it's a retrospective of really the entire tournament and kind of where I was at personally. I mean, this is a personal podcast, right? It's just me talking to you. So I'm going to keep this one a little bit more personal because it's the one I have the most vivid memories of just because of what was happening in my life. So where was I? Um, 2016, I had decided to take a job in St. Louis. I'd grown up in San Antonio, Texas my whole life. I was living there at the time. Um, I had a brief period where I was living in a different city, but I was working and coaching basketball in San Antonio, Texas. And I got an email from a, a guy. He used to work for a school that I was at, and now he was running a different school in St. Louis. And he said, Hey, we're, you know, we're changing up our basketball program. You should apply. You know, I'd love to have you on board type thing. I think he sent it to quite a few people, but I was just like, Oh, that actually sounds pretty interesting. I don't have a whole lot going on. Let me at least see what's out there. Um, so I ended up taking that job kind of fast forward. Um, and this is now that was in the spring of 2016. So summer, it's getting closer. I was supposed to move in kind of the middle of June. And I went for my interview early May, you know, took the job, accepted it, did all that good stuff, kind of got situated in St. Louis. And then I came home, was playing basketball, pickup basketball at a, a lifetime fitness in San Antonio. And I tore my ACL playing basketball and uh, had to delay my move by about five weeks because I had to have surgery, rehab, all that stuff. I mean, I'm going to be a basketball coach and trainer. So obviously I needed to kind of reconstruct that knee before I headed up there. So I went to St. Louis on a bum knee and uh, never totally got better. It still gives me some problems to this day, uh, but that's neither here nor there. So long story short is I had my surgery the day Euro 2016 started. Um, obviously, uh, being as big a fan of the sport as I am, I was excited for the tournament. Um, so I scheduled my surgery for early in the morning so that I would be hopefully okay and out of the med phase uh, in time to watch the France and Romania match, which is what kicked off this tournament. And I remember my dad told me this story. He was the one who took me to my um, surgery and, and brought me back home. And he said, you kept, he said, well, once you're under anesthesia, you just kept humming the French national anthem over and over <laughs> and kept asking me, did you record the game? Did you record the game in case I was still asleep? And I was like, man, that is the most nerdy thing. I mean, you see those videos all the time. People post of like people, you know, under anesthesia saying crazy stuff or whatever. Uh, for me, it was humming the French national anthem and <laughs> asking my dad to make sure he recorded the game, which thankfully he did. Uh, so I remember getting home from the surgery. Obviously, I'm all you know hopped up on meds and stuff like that. I think I threw up at some point, um, but I did kind of like open my eyes enough to kind of take in the opening match. And uh, Dimitri Payet got the late winner and France got off to Euro 2016. The host, France, got off to Euro 2016 with a winning start and a 2-1 win over Romania. Uh, so that was kind of my intro to the tournament. And I was on the couch the entire time. Um, I think there was one period where I was in the uh, room I was living in at the time with my parents before I headed up to my place in St. Louis. Uh, I was in that room. I don't think I left either the room or the bathroom, this little very small radius for a good 72 hours because I was just 
I mean, just could barely move with my knee and all that stuff. And it was such a hassle getting up and up and down from the bathroom. So I just sat there and I just watched every match of the Euros. I would wake up when I started. I'd watch them in between. I'd be watching, you know, an episode. I was going through Peaky Blinders at the time, the show Peaky Blinders at the time. So maybe I'd watch an episode between the games and then I'd watch more games. And then at night I'd watch more Peaky Blinders. And I watched this crazy long World War One documentary at some point during <laughs> during that. So I was watching animated movies. I was working on little projects with some stuff that I was trying to get rid of. And it was just kind of a weird time. But the through line of that whole kind of recovery process for me was Euro 2016. And it really kept me company. And that's one thing I kind of want to talk about in this episode was how much this stuff matters to people and how much in different phases of people's lives, it can mean different things. So Euro 2016, while overall not that great of a tournament, it was actually quite low scoring. There's some really kind of duds of, of games. It was the first tournament that had 24 teams. It's not an all-time classic tournament by any means. I mean, really not even close. But for some people, it means different things, right? For me, it was like, hey, this is that comfort blanket while I was recovering from this like really difficult knee surgery that like really have honestly has changed the way I have to, you know, participate when I play sports now. I mean, I have to, I, I don't, I very rarely ever sprint. So I'm kind of scared to do it again. I, I mean, there's a mental block now sometimes when I don't wear a brace anymore, but you know, it, it's changed the way I, I exercise really. Um, and I have to ice all the time. And so, you know, something that like was, could be pretty traumatic. I had this kind of comfort blanket of, oh, at least I can kind of like have this, these Euro 2016 matches to watch, even if they're not that great. It's still something, it's something to talk about, something to get on Twitter and talk about, it's something to call my brother and talk about. Um, I just, I enjoyed that part of it. And so it did mean a lot to me, this tournament. Well, again, the tournament was not that great. And if you're a Wales fan, the tournament is amazing. It's this lifelong memory, right? You made this incredible run to the semifinals when you'd never played in the Euros before, get to the semifinals the first time you're ever there, um, only to lose to Portugal, the, the defending, the eventual champions. So it means something different to, to a, you know, a Welsh supporter as opposed to an England supporter who, you know, didn't play that well and had Harry Kane taking corners and uh, lost to Iceland in the round of 16. So it's like, the, and then the Iceland fans, that's a much different experience than, say, the Austria fans who flamed out in the group stages. So it's, it's interesting to me how tournaments can mean different things to different people, depending on kind of just your perspective or, or what was going on in your life at the time. And so that's one thing I kind of want to hit on with this tournament in particular. But um, let's actually go through the matches and I'll just kind of, you know, tell some stories about kind of what was going on as, as I was. I mean, for the vast majority of these, I'm just sitting on a, on a bed or a couch watching. But um, there's some kind of other parts and, and some context to give for each one. So like I said earlier, uh, year 2016 is the first time that 24 teams were invited to the tournament. The qualification qualification process is pretty much as it goes. I mean, it, it's very typical. Bunch of groups. Top two teams go through. The best third place team also goes through. And then there's playoffs for the last four spots. Once those last four spots were determined, they put them into a draw draw into six different groups so it's six groups of four the top two teams from each group after the group stage move on to the round of 16 and the four best second place second place teams also move on to the round of 16 um so that would give us our 16 teams obviously so the so there are two teams that would finish third that would not move on to the round of 16 and then obviously all the bottom um teams all the teams who finish fourth in the group are eliminated at the group stage so pretty straightforward uh, concept once you kind of get your head around it i mean obviously 24 teams it's not a clean process like the world cup where it goes from 32 to 16 um, that's a, it's obviously a little bit trickier going from 24 to 16 and it does make the group stage a little less important not a little I mean it definitely makes the group stage less important right because you have these like almost double jeopardy because you know you can get off to a terrible start lose your first two matches win that third one and mo more than likely three points is going to be enough for you to be one of those four best teams to go through so it did take a bit of the sting out of the group stages but what it allowed for was more spots available for nations like Wales Albania uh, Iceland, Northern Ireland, Slovakia, all of them to make their debuts on the uh, Euro stage. And I think that's pretty cool because the Northern Ireland fans and the, Whale the Welsh fans, they added a real sense of fun to the tournament. And then obviously Wales goes on this incredible run and gets to the semifinals. So I like that it allowed for teams like that to make it. Now, Wales would have qualified regardless under in, in a normal uh, qualification circumstance because of just how well they played in the qualifying. 
but I think those extra 24 matches, it, it applied, you know, this buffer for some of these teams to be like, okay, yeah, we lost our, you know, maybe we lost the first couple of matches or two of our first three qualifying matches, but there's still room for us to get back into this and actually still qualify. So um, I like that part of it. It is a little bit more inclusive. Obviously, there are 53 nations as a part of UEFA at the time. So, you know, 24 of the 53 nations make it. Whereas you look at the Copa America for, uh, for South America, all 10 of those nations who compete in qualifying uh, make it. They don't even qualify for that anymore. Just all 10 nations are in the Copa America and they usually add two from another confederation. You know, let's say it's Mexico or something like that. Or I think Qatar is going to play in the one uh, this summer. So um, that's obviously, you know, the more nations you have, the more spots you should probably give. Now, 24, again, it does water down the competition. I talked last week about the how 16 is the perfect number of teams for an international competition. And I believe that. But I do think there's pros, there are some pros and cons to adding 24. Um, and I think overall in the, in the Euro 2016, they kind of evened out. I think the negatives and the, and the positives kind of ended up evening out, which created a pretty decent tournament, other than the play on the, on the pitch sometimes wasn't um, as high quality as, say, you know, obviously Euro 2000, which I, I think is probably the best one. So um, who qualified for this tournament? Let's go through those very quickly. Uh, France as host, obviously, um, they won that hosting rights over Turkey in the uh, hosting bid process. Uh, England, Group E winner. Czech Republic, Iceland, Austria, Northern Ireland, uh, Portugal, Spain, Switzerland, Italy, Belgium, Wales, Romania, Albania, Germany, Poland, Russia, Slovakia, Croatia, Turkey, Hungary, uh, playing in their first international tournament in 30 years at that point, uh, Republic of Ireland, Sweden, and Ukraine. So how did the group stage play out? There were 10 different French cities that were used as host uh, sites with the Stade de France open, uh, having the opening game for France up uh, Romania. And then obviously the closing, the, the final was there as well between France and Portugal. But before we get there, let's go through the group stage. Okay, Group A had the host France obviously open with that win that I've already talked about. Uh, Switzerland beat Albania the next day with a Fabian Schar goal. Romania and Switzerland on the second match day played to a 1-1 draw, while France beat Albania with two late goals from Antoine Griezmann and Dimitri Payet. And then on the third match day, Albania beat Romania one uh, nil and then Switzerland and France drew nil nil. So this actually was one of the two groups who did not have a third place team advance. So France won the group on seven points, Switzerland on five, Albania on three, Romania on one. Um, so only two teams advanced from group a group B contained uh, Wales, England, Slovakia, and Russia. And they finished in that order because Wales beat Slovakia on that opening match day with goals from Gareth Bale and Hal Robson Kanu. England and Russia played to a one, one draw. Eric Dyer opened the scoring for England and uh, Valerie Barashutsky, uh, level the match very late on, and there are Vasily Bereshutsky, I should say, uh, level the match late on, and that created some uh, fan trouble among the English and Russian fans, and that was something that was a bit of a uh, negative spotlight on the English supporters. There was multiple uh, instances of fan trouble involving England supporters, and that's definitely a black mark on them for this tournament. Uh, on the second match day, it was Slovakia beating Russia 2-1 with goals from Vladimir Weiss and Marek Hamšík. And then England beat Wales very late on. Gareth Bale opened the scoring for Wales. Jamie Vardy got the equalizer. And then Daniel Sturridge popped up in the 92nd minute to win it for England. And then on the final match day, it was Wales who crushed Russia with goals from Aaron Ramsey, Neil Taylor, and Gareth Bale again. And then Slovakia and England played to a nil-nil draw. So that means that Wales actually won the group on six points. England with those two draws finished on five in second place. And then Slovakia on four points um, also went through to the last 16. Group C. Uh, Poland beat Northern Ireland with an Arcadius Milik goal. Germany beat Ukraine 2-0 with Skodra Mustafi and Bastian Schweinsteiger getting on the score sheet. On the second match day, it was Northern Ireland beating Ukraine 2-0, and then Germany and Poland drawing 0-0 in Saint-Denis at the Stade de France. And then the third match day saw Poland beat Ukraine with a Jakub Blaszczykowski goal. Very nice goal indeed. And then uh, Germany beat Northern Ireland with uh, a goal from Mario Gomez in the 30th minute. So Germany and Poland finished on seven points and both went through 
to the uh, uh, last 16 and then Northern Ireland on three points, but a zero goal differential, which is why they went in over Albania. Albania also finished on three points in group A, but had a negative two goal differential while Northern Ireland had three points, but a, a zero goal differential. So they got to go through to the round of 16. Group D was the other group that only had two teams advancing. Also the same problem. Turkey finished on three points, but a negative two goal differential. So they were knocked out. Croatia won the group. Uh, on seven points, Spain finished in second on six, and then Czech Republic brought up the rear on only one point. Uh, the first match day of that group saw Croatia beat Turkey and Spain beat the Czech Republic, both 1-0 scorelines there. And then uh, the Czech Republic and Croatia played a pretty fun 2-2 uh, draw, and that was uh, goals from Ivan Perisic and Ivan Rakitic for Croatia. And Czech Republic, it was Milan Skoda and Thomas Nesid with a late penalty. Uh, that's all that, that match finished 2-2. Uh, Spain crushed Turkey in Nice with goals from Alvar, two goals from Alvaro Morata and a goal from Nolito. And then the final match day, Turkey beat the Czech Republic 2-0 and Croatia beat Spain 2-1 with uh, Perisic again getting on the score sheet, uh, getting the late winner there after uh, come from by and win for Croatia. So that takes us to Group E, Republic of Ireland and Sweden opened the group with a 1-1 draw. And then Italy beat Belgium in a bit of a surprise 2-0 with goals from Emanuele Giaccarini and Graziano Pelle. Uh, this is, uh, by the way, it's uh, Antonio Conte's Italy side. Antonio Conte just recently won the Scudetto with Inter uh, five years later. So, and then Italy uh, beat Sweden 1-0 with a goal from Adair, a very late winner. Belgium beat the Republic of Ireland 3-0 with goals from uh, two goals from Romelu Lukaku and uh, one from Axel Witzel. And then final match day, this set up uh, quite a dramatic final match day here. Belgium beat Sweden to knock them out, advance over them in the group uh, with a goal from Raja Nangalan, a very late winner there. And that was, at the time, it was uh, Latin Ibrahimovic's last match for Sweden. He had said that he was going to come back and play in Euro 2020, uh, but then was injured and was is obviously not a part of the squad. And then the Republic of Ireland with a very late winner over Italy, and they get to advance, finishing on four points. Um, a negative two goal differential, but finished on four points because of that win over Italy. They had gotten that draw in the first match against Sweden, right? And then uh, win this match. That was kind of uh, meaningless for Italy because they had won the group on six points already. So it didn't really matter to them. Um, but it was Robbie Brady popping up the late winner. And on the Euro 2016 kind of official film, uh, it's this French film that you can find. I think it's on Daily Motion. Um, there's some really cool scenes of Robbie Brady uh, going and hugging his family right after the match. Pr- pretty cool, pretty emotional stuff. And Republic of Ireland were through to the last 16. So the final group uh, featured the team who ended up going on and winning the tournament. And this is something I want to kind of get to. And part of the reason I'm not focusing on a single match was this Portuguese team is, I think, along with Greece, probably the worst winners of any of these zeros that I've gone back, which is all of them, uh, gone back and researched. Um, I mean, you look at their, they're playing the group stage, three straight draws and in any other European championships, they would not have even made it out of the group stage, but instead they go on to win the, mat, the win the tournament. They only won one match in the full 90 minutes in normal time uh, in the entire tournament, not just the group stage. They didn't win any in the group stage. And it's just it's just not a vintage team. I think the Portuguese squad they have for year 2020 is much better than the team they had for year 2016. And it just goes to show that knockout football, tournament football um, specifically, it can be just super random. I mean, that's part of the reason we love it, right? Anything can happen. There can be kind of crazy, crazy upsets or, 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 you know, matches that, that go to extra time that really shouldn't have, or, you know, a team can really dig in and defend well and kind of upset, you know, one of the big dogs and, and that happens. Right. And that's part of the reason we love it. But you know, the downside of that is you sometimes get champions that just don't really feel very deserving. Now, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo is playing on this team. And so it's like, Oh, well, any team with Ronaldo, you know, is deserving of winning the final, but this is not a vintage tournament from Ronaldo. And he barely plays in the final as you guys will find out here in a bit. So um, that's one thing I kind of want to talk about as we talk about this group, especially was just how Portugal wouldn't have even made it through under normal circumstances, but because you know we have twenty four teams and uh, they get to go through again thanks to the a, a, a zero goal differential. So you know if they just give up 
one or two more goals, they're just not going through anyway. So uh, how did this group shake out? Hungary beat Austria on the first day 2-0, uh, while, Pol- uh, while Portugal and Iceland drew 1-1. And that was the first time it seemed like Iceland, hey, they may be here to stay. This is actually pretty cool. Like they, you know, um, this tiny little nation, you know, smallest nation to ever qualify for a major tournament. And they're, you know, they get a draw with Portugal in their first match, much like they got a draw in their first match in the 2018 World Cup with Argentina. So uh, pretty cool for them. Iceland then drew with Hungary 1-1. Uh, they gave up a late um goal to Hungary to uh, force that match to be a draw. And then Portugal and Austria drew nil-nil with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo missing a penalty at nil-nil. Obviously, that would have won the match for Portugal, but he misses it. Um, and Portugal just starts yeah, with consecutive draws and just, again, just didn't look very good. Iceland, uh, on the final match day, Iceland was playing Austria and Hungary and Portugal were playing. So there was all kinds of different permutations going on depending on how these matches played out. So going into the final match day, Hungary was on four points. Portugal was on two. Iceland was on two and Austria was on one. So any of the four teams could have still gone through with a win in any of these matches. Um, and there are scenarios where a team could draw and not go through or win and not, or anybody who won would go through. There are some situations where a team could lose, but still go through. So all kinds of permutations going into this final match day and the Hungary and Portugal match finished three, three, uh, just a back and forth, probably the best match of the tournament. So Zoltan Gera opened the scoring for Hungary in the 19th minute. Nani equalized in the 42nd. And then Balas Juzak in the 47th gave Hungary the lead again. Cristiano Ronaldo just three minutes later equalizes. Balas Juzak again scores in the 55th minute to give Hungary a 3-2 lead. And then Cristiano Ronaldo equalizes again in the 62nd minute. So um, that was Ronaldo's second goal of the tournament, second goal of the game. And just, yeah, epic scenes. But that's one that could have easily swung either way. Now, in the end, both teams advanced. Hungary advances on five points, Portugal on three. And that's because Iceland got a late winner over Austria in the 94th minute. Um, to win 2-1. So that, I mean, that's another one. It's just like, it could have just totally changed. If Iceland draws that match, they finish on three points um, with a plus one, or they finish on three points with a zero goal differential, but they would have dropped into third place and Portugal would have been in second and that would have totally changed the bracket. Everything would have changed if Iceland doesn't get that final uh, winner and they, you know, obviously don't move on to play England in the round of 16. So just kind of, you know, crazy scenes. It, it knocked out Austria. Austria would have still gone out had it been a draw. So Austria had to win that last match to go through. But yeah, it just kind of showed the fortitude of the Iceland team and, and you know, one that everybody, all the neutrals kind of fell for during that tournament, especially after the uh, the group stage when, you know, they make it through in second place in a group that contains Portugal, right? And so that's pretty awesome stuff. So um, that's it for the group stage. I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to get on, move on to the uh, round of 16. Okay, on to the round of 16. So my quick little roundup of the, of the group stages was a lot of times in these tournaments, the group stages are a little more open on that third match day, right? Those, those games where there's two kind of going on at once and there's different permutations and that, you know, no, no greater than in, in group F there. The one that we just kind of talked about at the end there with the, the uh, Hungary, Iceland, Portugal and Austria group. And I think that sometimes I, you know, I, you want that to carry over into the, the knockout stages, but it very rarely does, right? Knockout in football is just kind of inherently more tense, more cagey, and you just don't get that many kind of high scoring matches. But this one, that actually wasn't really the case. It was early on in the tournament that it was really, really cagey. And like there was a ton of late goals, late winners, got a lot of one nils and very low scoring matches. And then the actual knockout stages, it was a little bit higher scoring than normal. Um, it was actually kind of the group stage that lagged a bit in Euro 2016. And I think one of the things, you know, heading into Euro 2016, it, where the world was at the, at the moment, um, Real Madrid had just won the uh, Champions League. So that's kind of where club football was. Um, obviously, in the five kind of major leagues, it, we're starting to see this kind of takeover of, you know, one really big team kind of dominating a league, right? So, and, and that's that not really including the Premier League there, but Bayern Munich won uh, the Bundesliga, Juventus won Serie A, uh, Barcelona had won 
La Liga again. And so, you know, we're seeing a bunch of these teams kind of just repeat champions over and over and over. PSG had, had won uh, Ligue 1 especially. And then in 2016, we obviously had the Leicester story in the Premier League. So the contrast of Leicester versus those other four major leagues where it's like that kind of same team winning over and over was really nice and kind of a reminder, hey, you know, craziness can still happen in football. Maybe something crazy will happen at the Euros, much like in 2004 when Porto kind of upset the world and ended up going on this crazy run and win, wins the Champions League. Greece then wins Euro 2004. Many people thought heading into 2016, Euro 2016, maybe we're going to have kind of a crazy champion just like we did in the Premier League. And, and, and you know, I have to say, Portugal, that was an upset. I mean, th- th- this is not a team that I thought coming into the tournament was one that, you know, could win it or should win it or anything like that. Um, I think I think we look back at that and think, and we'll be like, oh, Ronaldo was on the team, therefore it's this classic team, but I really just don't think that's that's the case. And so Ronaldo gets to pull off the rare feat of winning the Champions League and the Euros in the same season. So he goes on to win the Ballon d'Or. Uh, that that season and rightly so that's that's when I think he deserved that year but yeah I mean getting back to the actual tournament itself it, you know this is this is just not kind of how we thought it would play out but let's get to the uh, round of 16 the first match of the round of 16 was played in San Etienne and it was uh, Poland and Switzerland went uh, to extra time after uh, 1-1 uh, Jordan Shakiri got a late equalizer fantastical in that match after Jakub Blaszczykowski had opened the scoring for uh, Poland that went to penalties and Poland ended up winning five foreign penalties. The unlucky man to miss in the shootout for Switzerland was Granite Shaka. Arsenal's Granite Shaka. There you go. Uh, for uh, the next game of the round of 16, it was Wales and Northern Ireland, two of the UK nations facing off in a round of 16. I mean, just awesome that those two countries were playing in Paris in, in a round of 16 match. And it was a Gareth McCauley own goal that uh, had come in. It was, it was a Gareth Bell cross that he, you know, wicked cross that he whipped in. Gareth McCauley really couldn't do anything about it. Uh, he, sticks a boot out. If he doesn't, it's a tap in for, for Wales. And so he sticks a boot out, hopefully trying to um, deflect it either wide or into the keeper, but it goes into the back of the net and Wales wins one nil. And then uh, Portugal plays Croatia in Lons. And it was a late Ricardo Karajma goal off the, uh, off of a counterattack, which saw Portugal go through after extra time. That was a uh, goal in the 117th minute. Croatia had badly outplayed Portugal for much of that match, but uh, Portugal held on and got that, got that late winner. Uh, France played the Republic of Ireland. And uh, that was at, at, at the, uh, at Lyon Stadium, um, and France trailed in the second minute, thanks to a Robbie Brady penalty, and it trailed for much of the match until the 58th minute, and then Antoine Griezmann got uh, quick-fire goals in the 58th and 61st minute to regain the lead, and uh, saw that through all the way to the final whistle. Uh, that Republic of Ireland team, that was they defended quite deep, but their supporters added just incredible um, layer of support to all the matches that they played in, and, and by all accounts, and, and any of the stuff you read and kind of some of the stuff I went back and watched on YouTube, um, both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland fans and the Welsh fans, to be fair too, added a, uh, a level of just kind of fun to the, to the proceedings. I mean, there's a lot of fans that went, even if they weren't going to the matches and just kind of were in the towns and hanging out in France and created this real party atmosphere. And I think that was a worry because, you know, this is something we haven't talked about yet, but definitely should, I guess we can get to this now. You know, there was the, the terrorist attacks in Paris in the fall of 2015. Um, there was that Eagles of death metal concert where Antoine Griezmann's sister had been in attendance and, uh, there was a bunch of people killed in that in that just tragic event, and there was a plan for there to be bombs at the Stade de France that night as uh, Germany and France were playing in a Portugal. Uh, Germany and France were playing in a friendly that night, um, and there's a bomb you can hear outside the stadium at at one point, and there was uh, a guy who had stopped somebody that you know was suspicious outside the stadium. It could have been a much worse. Um, there's a clip you can find on YouTube of, of Patrice, Patrice Everett was on the ball when you hear the bomb go off and everybody just kind of freezes for a second. It was like, Oh, that was, that didn't seem right. And then the match just kind of continues a very this odd, you know, eerie moment in, in these, you know, tragic attacks in Paris. And, you know, so the security worry heading into the year 2016 was, was significant. I mean, it was, there's always a worry when you go into tournaments like this, you know, on, on this scale, especially in a, in a country that's had some attacks like, like, like France has and, and particularly Paris. So that, that was always going to be a worry. 
Um, but it was nice that some of these fans still got to go and still got to create this party atmosphere and didn't let the terrace win. Right. There was a lot of fans who said, yeah, you know, I know this is, this is a risk, but I'm going like, I'm not going to let people like that determine what I do, you know, with my summer holiday. I mean, I, I think that's really cool that there was enough fans that could still create this like real good vibe in the country. I, I finished a book recently, um, that Matt Spiro wrote, uh, it was about kind of the, you know, the history of French football from 1998 to 2018. And he talked about how the wave of, of, of euphoria kind of swept through the nation in France throughout that tournament. And as France kind of continued to go, there was just a kind of real party atmosphere that the other countries provided. And it swept the French people up into as well, because the French people, it's, it's the, it's historically, they're really into football. There are fans who are really into it, or there are people who just don't care about it at all. Um, and there was a lot of people who kind of got into it after the world cup in 1998 on home soil when they, when they won thanks to uh, Zidane and company. And this, I think had a similar effect, um, uh, by all accounts. And so I think that's kind of cool that it wasn't just the French people that are kind of getting into it. It was kind of spurred on by a lot of the other nations, you know, being, being present and, and a lot of the fans being present there too. So I thought that was really cool. And watching from afar, you know, as I am with my knee up in a brace uh, watching these matches, I thought that was a really fun part of it for me too. And I also got to see another part of France that I, you know, I'd, I'd been to Paris at that point a couple of times. I've been, been once since then. Um, but I haven't been, I hadn't been to other parts of France before that. So getting to see these matches, you know, take place in, in Saint-Denis or, uh, or Nice or Marseille or Toulouse or Lyon, uh, the, the, obviously there's parts of that country that are just absolutely gorgeous. And so, you know, they're doing these little bits at halftime or pregame of, of just kind of showing what the city is like and different shots like that. And so that's another thing that kind of drew me to it and, and what made it fun for me too. And, and, and at the time I, I mentioned this already, but I'm watching this, you know, crazy long world war one documentary. And so, you know, I'm kind of learning about that part of it as well and kind of their involvement and, um, kind of, you know, some of the battles that were fought in that part of the world. And I mean, it's just kind of this, this really like unique time for me in terms of like learning and learning about kind of European culture and history. And I think this, you know, this, a uh, football tournament like this goes hand in hand with that. Um, not to make light of anything else, but, uh, you know, something as significant as world war one, but, um, to kind of dovetail those two was, was pretty fun for me, at least in my, my own mind. Uh, but let's get back to the round of 16, uh, Germany beat Slovakia three nil with goals from Jerome Boateng, Mario Gomez and Julian Draxler. Uh, they made very light work of Slovakia. And then the Belgians made even lighter work of Hungary uh, with a 4-0 win. Toby Alderweireld, Michi Bachelet, uh, Eden Hazard, and Yannick Carrasco all getting on the score sheet for the Belgians in that match. Now, that was 1-0 for a long time. Um, and then Belgium got three late goals in the 78th, 80th, and 91st minute to kind of seal that. But yeah, once once they got that second one, it was just all one-way traffic. And that was it. Belgium fully deserved their spot in the quarterfinals. Italy beat Spain in a slight upset. Remember, Spain is obviously coming off of winning the uh, Euro 2008 and Euro 2012 tournaments. Um, they had a disastrous 2014 World Cup and definitely were at the end of a cycle. I mean, this is kind of the last tournaments for a few of their kind of big names of that era. Um, and they go out in the round of 16 to an Italy side that played just a really kind of like canny tactical game against them and end up winning uh, with goals from Giorgio Chiellini and Graziano Pella. Um, Pella adding that one in stoppage time to, to seal a 2-0 win. So very impressive. And then the final uh, round of 16 match was the kind of iconic one in Nice with Iceland beating England 2-1. England opened the scoring with a Wayne Rooney penalty in the fourth minute, but Iceland hit right back when Ragnar Sigurdsson scored in the sixth minute, and then just 12 minutes later, it was Kolbein Sig Thorsen who scored uh, to make it 2-1 Iceland inside of 18 minutes. Iceland then held on for the win um, and advanced to the quarterfinals in the first uh, major national tournament that they even com competed in. So massive, massive 
um, achievement for them. I mean, that England team is not a classic team by any stretch of the imagination. They're kind of caught between eras. There's, you know, there's the Vardys and the Canes and, you know, Deli Alleys and some of those guys, Eric Dyer, who were coming on at that time and were a part of the squad. But, you know, Wayne Rooney's the captain and he's, you know, very much on his last legs as, as an effective international player. So it's just kind of this mix of strange, you know, players. They couldn't kind of, Roy Hodgson was the manager. Um, obviously, you see in 2018, they kind of have this whole new wave of players and, you know, they advance. And then as 2020 team, you know, slash 2021 team is going to be even more um, kind of fresh and young and kind of hip. I mean, this is just kind of like a cool England squad that they have uh, this day. So a much better squad than they took to a year 2016. So really not surprising. They played horribly. So I'm um, not surprising that they lost that match 2-1 to Iceland and well-deserved to the Icelandic group there. Okay, on to the quarterfinals. Uh, Portugal and Poland was the first quarterfinal. Robert Lewandowski opened the scoring in the second minute for Poland. Um, but Renato Sanchez, who ended up winning the Young Player of the, uh, of the Tournament Award, uh, for Portugal, leveled in the 33rd minute. Uh, it stayed 1-1 until uh, penalties. We went all the way to penalties. And Cristiano Ronaldo, I love this. So we talked about this in the Euro 2012 wrap-up, how he uh, went fifth, or, or was, was slated to go fifth in the shootout with Spain in the semifinal of Euro 2012. Um, but Bruno Alves missed his penalty, and then Spain scored. And so Spain goes through before Ronaldo could even take one. So what order, or where does Ronaldo fall in the order this time when it comes to penalties for Portugal? Well, he goes first for, for them, uh, and he buries his penalty. And Portugal ended up winning that shootout 5-3 with Jakub Blaszczykowski missing uh, his crucial penalty for Poland. He was the fourth figure for them. So um, heartbreak for Poland. They'd played well. Um, again, one that was like a bit of a toss-up, if not Poland actually shitting that match. Uh, but Portugal go through on penalties, so... They survive in advance all the way to the semifinals. And then here is one of the matches of the tournament. If I was to watch one back and like really kind of uh, break it down, uh, it'd be this Wales and Belgium quarterfinal. Now, I'm not going to do that because this uh, very good podcast I listen to called, uh, I think it's just called Classic. It's the Blizzard podcast, but they, every Friday they do, or I think it's on Mondays, they do a classic match and they bring on somebody to talk about kind of like a match they attended or has a special place for them. It's uh, Jonathan Wilson and uh, Marcus Speller um, that hosts that show. And someone recently did this Wales and Belgium match the three, one win. Um, and it was a really fun. Listen. So that's, that's worth listening. If you want to hear a bigger breakdown of that, of that match, but uh, Wales ended up winning three, one uh, thanks to goals from Ashley Williams, Hal Robson, Kanu and Sam Vokes. The Hal Robson Kanu goal was absolutely phenomenal. He has this ridiculous turn to kind of beat two German defender or beat German, uh, beat two Belgian defenders and then place the ball home that, to get that gave them a two, one lead. And then Sam Vokes out of the late third goal to seal their way through. Uh, Belgium was still under Mark Wilmots at the time and obviously fired him right after this tournament. And I just had an uneven tournament for as loaded a squad they had, as they had, they had just made the quarterfinals of the world cup in 2014. Um, they go to, they get to the quarterfinals here, but really didn't play that well. I mean, they lost that match to Italy. They kind of go, they essentially go two and two in the tournament and they hire Roberto Martinez after the tournament. And he led them to third place in the 2018 world cup. And um, they're one of the favorites for sure to lift the trophy here this summer for Euro 2020. So yeah, so that was Wales through to the semifinals. Incredible. I mean, incredible achievement. I mean, it, it really, it's like that shouldn't be, um, overlooked how awesome of an achievement it is that Wales made the semifinals of a tournament when they had not played in a major international tournament since the 1958 world cup. So, uh, pretty cool for them. The, uh, probably highest profile quarterfinal was Germany and Italy. And we talked about this on the last podcast with Austin, how there's a bit of a rock, paper, scissors going on between Germany, Spain, and Italy at this time. Um, well, this is one where Germany actually got one over on Italy. They had lost to them in the Euro 2012 semifinal, as well as the uh, 2006 World Cup semifinal. But here, Germany is winning on penalties. Uh, Mesut Ozil opened the scoring for Germany. Leonardo Bonucci got a penalty for Italy. Um, and it goes all the way to penalties. It actually is a terrible penalty shootout to start. Uh, Tony Cruz scores. Lorenzo Antigone scores. And then Thomas Muller misses. Simone Zaza misses. With I, I mean, I don't even know... It's just this absurd penalty. That's Simone Zaza. This run-up is just this like kind of 
tap dancing run up that he does, and then he misses. Mesut Ozil misses. Barzagli scores for Italy. Julian Draxler scores for Germany. Graziano Pella misses. Bastian Schweinsteiger misses. Leonardo Bonucci misses when he had scored his penalty during the regular flow of the match. And then finally, Hummel scores. Jacarini scores. Kimmich scores. Parolo scores. Boateng scores. De Siglio scores. Hector scores. Matteo Darmian misses, and Germany go through. So yeah, I'm just a kind of a crazy penalty shootout. After the five, uh, the first five kick takers are taken. It was only two two. Three players from each team had missed. So um, not necessarily a uh, picture of perfect consistency in that penalty shootout. But it actually finishes six five, and uh, Germany go through to the semifinals again. The, I mean, again, Germany's coming in as the 2014 World Cup winners. So very much favorites, or one of the favorites to lift the trophy for this tournament. Uh, France. Uh, then put Iceland to the sword with a 5-2 win, ending their fairy tale dreams with a, a genuinely really, really impressive performance from France. Uh, Olivier Giroud got a couple in that match. Uh, Paul Pogba, Dimitri Payet, and Antoine Griezmann all scored as well. Uh, it was 4-0 at halftime. Uh, Iceland did get two goals in the second half, but that match finished 5-2 at the Stade de France, and France were into the semifinals. So let's get to the semifinals. Here's the only match that Portugal won in 90 minutes, and it's probably their best performance of the tournament. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo opened the scoring in the 50th minute, and Nani added one in the 53rd minute to make it 2-0 to Portugal, which is what the match finished. Um, yeah, pretty impressive performance for them. That, again, is that one that you can kind of point to and be like, okay, that was actually like, they actually played really well in that match, totally deserved to win, and are, were rightfully in the final, based on that performance at least. The other match also finished 2-0, rather controversially, with... Uh, uh, Antoine Griezmann scoring a penalty right before halftime. It was very controversially awarded. Uh, there's even France fans who you can see on this one video that Copa 90 did um, on their YouTube channel where this France fan just looks, I don't know what it's for. I don't really care. I'm just glad we got the penalty. Uh, you can see the replays and it's just like, it's very bizarre that a penalty was given. I think if there was VAR in this tournament, it probably would have been overturned. But then Griezmann added a second one in the 72nd minute and that was too much for Germany and France had their place in the finals uh, in, in a home final. Pretty, pretty cool. So the final... Not classic, right? Cristiano Ronaldo, there's the moths. Everybody remembers the moths <laughs> that uh, apparently someone had left the lights on at the Stade de France uh, before the match, the night before the match. And so a bunch of moths descended on the actual pitch and then kind of were like hovering around the lights uh, particularly. So then the next day, they just never really left. And then the lights are on during the match. And so there's just this huge swath of moths just flying around, you know, people trying to swat them away. So, but it lasted the whole match. I mean, there's this very kind of significant image of when Cristiano Ronaldo finally went down injured and was kind of holding his knee. There's a moth just like right on his face. And it's just like this very strange remnant of Euro 2016 memory where it's like, oh yeah, I remember the moths in the final. That was, that was really random. But yeah, so whoever left the lights on the night before, I'm sure got fired the next day. But, um, but the match goes to extra time. It was, uh, 1-0, Portugal win. Um, Adair came off the bench, a striker who very, very rarely scores, scored for Portugal, and it was definitely a smash-and-grab win. I mean, I think even in the final, you could say France shaded it. I mean, it was not a classic final by any means, and not one that I really wanted to spend two hours going back and watching. Um, but in the moment, I was kind of... I don't know if I was really rooting for anybody in that match. I, I just kind of thought, like, oh, it'd be cool if the home nation won. It'd be, you know, I, this France team is just better. I kind of like some of their players more, so maybe it'd be fun if France won, but I didn't really have any strong feelings either way. But when Portugal won, it just felt a little bit kind of like unsatisfactory. I mean, it was cool to see Ronaldo kind of like get that, you know, international trophy. And he obviously went nuts. You know, he's out injured, you know, for, for the last, you know, over an hour of the match. Um, and he's on the sidelines, you know, gesticulating and basically coaching the team along with Fernando Santos, the manager. And they get over the line. I mean, they, they finally make it. And, you know, Ronaldo lifts the trophy up and Portugal wins the Euros for the first time in their history. It was their first international trophy they've ever won. So that part of it is kind of cool, but it just doesn't feel like, Ah, that's really the Portugal side that will look back on and be like, that's the only one that won a trophy. That doesn't really seem right. I mean, I, like I said, I think this one that they have right now, and even like the Euro 2004 team or Euro 96 or World Cup 2000, 
six. It's like, I think even those squads are probably better than this year 2016 one, but this is the one that won. So this is the one that will get remembered by history um, and by people who look back and, and do some of this stuff. But this is part of the reason I do this podcast is right to explain some context and to be like, yeah, you know, that team won and, 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 and fair enough. But is that the one we should really remember? I don't, I don't really know. I think there's been better Portugal teams. Certainly you're uh, in a World Cup 1966. That team was fantastic. So I, 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 you know, it leaves me a little bit cold. And I remember thinking that when the match ended, I just kind of sat there on the couch like, oh, well, I watched a month of football for this, like kind of like random team to win. It just, it just felt a little bit kind of sad. I was like, oh, well, that was that was weird. Whereas, you know, your 2012 finishes on such a high note. Well, the, well, the final itself was not that competitive. I at least left thinking, OK, I just saw something really special there. Like that Spain performance was unbelievable. And it capped off this just a historic run where they win, you know, in 08 and 10 and 12. And I remember feeling like almost like, you know, buoyant afterwards. Like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Like, how cool. Like, I'll never forget that. Whereas I love Euro 2016, the final being like, well, well, that could have been better. You know, it just kind of, it was just kind of odd. Um, I felt that way before after kind of major sporting events, but this one in particular kind of stuck in my mind. Um, and shortly after that, I moved to St. Louis where I stayed for two years, coached basketball, met my wife, moved back. And now I live in San, in San Antonio with her and, you know, the rest is history. But, um, but yeah, it was just kind of a crazy time. I think, I think the ones that stand out now that I can kind of look, look back at the tournament and talk about kind of where I was, um, the Iceland England one for sure was like, I, I always I've talked about this before. I have this kind of like weird history with the English national team. I watch their players. I know their players better than any other country, even even the US. Right. Like I watch the English players more than any other team because I watch the Premier League week in and week out like religiously. So I don't know, you know, guys, at the back end of the US you know squad for any tournament because it's like, well, I'm not watching MLS games week in and week out. I've heard the names at least. Maybe I've seen them play once or twice, but I'm not watching them every single week. Whereas, you know, I have a significant opinion on the who should be in the 26 man squad for your 2020 for the, for England, because I've watched all these guys play so many times. So I wasn't necessarily rooting for England, but I kind of was like, Oh, this is cool. I get to watch, you know, all these guys that I get to you know see week in week out. And then they lose to Iceland. And it's like, man, what was that? That was pathetic. You know, it's like, but then you're also the other side of me is like, wow, that's really cool for Iceland. How awesome. You know, there's the thunderclap, you know, the craziness of their fans. I mean, it felt like half the country was in the stadium uh, every time they played and you know cheering their team on and that those scenes were just so cool and i'll never forget that having iceland make it all the way to the quarterfinals and same goes for the welsh right that's something i'll never forget and getting to watch and you know one of my first favorite players was gareth bale and so you know him captaining that team it was just cool i just felt like very proud it's like oh man this is this that must be so fun for those welsh supporters to have this moment um but yeah those are kind of the ones that kind of stand out and then and then i think the french crowd um obviously getting behind the team. You could kind of feel that as the tournament progressed, much like I talked about in that Matt Spiro book that he wrote. Um, and I think Antoine Griezmann, this is very much his coming out party. I mean, he, but you know, he falls just short, you know, winning and not winning this tournament. And then he also lost the champions league final in 2016 with Atletico Madrid missed a penalty in the final um, that could have wrapped it up for his, for his country. And, you know, it's like, that's that, those are the fine margins, right? Let's, let's say Atletico Madrid wins, the Champions League in 2016, and then France wins Euro 2016. Then it's Antoine Griezmann who probably wins the Ballon d'Or, and he kind of breaks up the Messi and Ronaldo duopoly that they had over that award for for a decade. So even earlier than Luka Modric did in in 2018. So it's like you know these things are are, are on such a fine margin. And it's interesting to, have to look back and be like, man, history could have been quite different if just like one little result goes goes differently, or one penalty goes in or doesn't go in. So I always think that stuff is fun too and why I like to do these podcasts like this. Um, but yeah, I still want to do the five categories that I like to talk about at the end of each podcast and then kind of read off the team of the tournament and all that stuff and, and the golden boots. So I'll do that after this quick break. Okay, I've been talking for a while all by myself here. So let's actually get to the topics relatively quickly um, and also kind of give you guys the team of the tournament and all that good stuff. And let's actually start with the team of the tournament. Well, this one, they actually went back to just a 11-player team of the tournament. So that was as follows. Uh, Rui Patricio of Portugal in goal. Uh, Jerome Boateng and Joshua Kimmich as the defenders for uh, Germany. Rafael Guerrero and Pepe rounded out the back line, both of Portugal. 
The midfielders were Antoine Griezmann and Dimitri Payet of France, Tony Cruz of Germany, Joe Allen and Aaron Ramsey of Wales. And then the forward was Cristiano Ronaldo of Portugal. So uh, four Portuguese players get in that team of the tournaments, three Germans, two French and two Welsh. So they didn't really spread it around too much. That's uh, I find that kind of interesting. Um, but hey, you make the semifinals, you get to be in the team of the tournament. So that's basically, yeah, it's only the semifinals that actually made it. So I find that kind of interesting. Um, the Golden Boot winner was Antoine Griezmann with six goals. He was by far the Golden Boot winner. Uh, there was uh, six players who also who scored three goals, and that was Olivia Giroud, Dimitri Payet, Nani, Cristiano Ronaldo, Alvaro Morata, and Gareth Bale. The Golden Boot winner for qualifying was Robert Lewandowski with 13 goals for Poland. Pretty impressive tally there. The goal of the tournament, so this was actually named by UEFA. They, they had done this on quite a few of these, and I, haven't, I hadn't really talked about this that much. Um, they actually used, they have named a goal of the tournament in most of these tournaments. I just have chosen my own. But in this case, I actually agreed with what they chose, and it was uh, Jordan Shakiri's goal in the uh, round of 16 match against Poland, the equalizer. Just absolutely phenomenal kind of, like, I mean, it's hard to describe. Basically, a scissor kick is essentially what it is. But yeah, well worth looking up. I and mean, that's just a fantastic goal. So if you look up Jordan Shakiri goal, Euro 2016, it'll pop up for you. That was a phenomenal one. Okay, the five categories that we talk about on each of these episodes. Uh, one big takeaway is the first thing. And I think for me, I, I mean, it's hard to not, you know, to separate the personal and the just kind of like, oh, here's the overview. Let me talk about kind of like the football portion of the tournament. Um, for me, it was just kind of where I was in life at the, at the time, right? I mean, that some of these tournaments, like I talked about already, they hit you at different points and they kind of like stand out maybe even more than they should. You know, Euro 96 is probably that way for a lot of England fans. Again, not that classic of a tournament, but for them, it was on home soil. Their team went far and it has this, you know, iconic soundtrack to it, right? As kind of like Brit pop is, you know, breaking and there's you know blur versus oasis and you know it's coming home and all that stuff it's like that hits differently for them than it does for maybe someone living in i don't know um spain so that's that's kind of like how i feel when i think about this tournament it's like oh this just has such a personal resonance i can like vividly remember the bed and the couch that i sat on for you know almost this entire tournament i i I feel like I, i mean i definitely watch every minute of it i think the majority of it i watch live i think very few of them did i like record and watch later i mean i was just so kind of like stuck at home because of how badly I'd messed up my knee playing basketball uh, that I just got a chance to watch this. So, I mean, that's probably what stands out to me. Um, that's probably boring for someone who wants more of a big, uh, big picture kind of takeaway from this, but eh, you know, this is personal. So um, that's it. Okay. Best shirt. A uh, lot of, lot to choose from obviously, right? There's 24 teams and a lot of them b- wore both of their home and away shirts during the tournament. So a bunch to go through really enjoyed quite a few of them. I mean, we're kind of getting a little bit into this, uh, this, this place now, like in, in like 2020 and 2021, where people are trying to do these kind of like, you know, modern take on a classic or these like really bold designs, but like year 2016, there's still like this nice kind of balance of like the classic and modern and kind of like all meshing together. And it's like, I think, I think they're trying a little bit too hard sometimes with some of these. Now I do think some of the international shirts are beautiful that, that are going to be on display at Euro 2020, but some of the club shirts are trying like a little too hard. I think like, you know, the modern Chelsea one, I'm kind of trying to shout out the one that they're going to wear for the 21, 22 season. It's just like, yeah, that's a, that's just like, it's just too busy. So I do like that. A lot of these were like relatively simple, but also had kind of a dash of modern to them. Um, and, and what I'm talking about is Spain, right? They're away one. It's white with kind of a red, the red crest, and then kind of like this red kind of explosion, like kind of graphic design coming out of it. And then a yellow one, even kind of bigger coming out of it as well. Um, that's just like kind of unique. The Croatian flag design, the checkerboard flag one, it actually looks like a waving flag. It's different than just kind of like a straight print like they have it most times. It's actually kind of this like wavy design where it almost looks like this flag that's kind of waving in the air. Really, really cool. Um, the checkerboard, you know, print for Croatia will always be awesome. It'll always have a high spot in my um, list. But I actually thought the Switzerland away one, it's basically white with these kind of red stripes going down kind of in descending order. They get kind of smaller. They kind of fade as it goes down further. 
Um, the France, I thought the Nike shirts were actually a little bit disappointing in this tournament. So France and England, it's like basically the exact same design, just different colors. Um, Poland also, same thing. They're basically the exact same. Turkey as well. There's quite a few Nike shirts where Croatia, they get kind of their own design with a checkerboard. But uh, And then the Portugal shirts as well. They uh, they had an away kind of mint green one that was pretty cool. Um, and then their home one was just kind of their classic, you know, like kind of maroon color. But the all the designs are the exact same for the Nike ones for France, England, Portugal, Turkey, Poland. They're just they're a little, little too basic. You know, it's like I, I get they're kind of going with that classic look. But they're almost like a little bit too basic uh, i thought the republic of ireland home shirt the green one that's just a classic really really nice um iceland has their blue home one with the kind of red stripe going down the left side that kind of like it goes starts over the crest and continues kind of like breaks for the crest and then keeps going all the way down to the bottom of the shirt i really like that one and the belgium away really kind of classic one this kind of light blue and then this horizontal belgium flag that kind of goes over the kind of like just into the kind of the breast part of the shirt uh, i thought that one was really nice too so but my actual favorite i might I might go, this is so boring, but I might go with the Croatia, the waving flag checkerboard one. I just think that one's so cool. Such a unique shirt. Uh, Croatia lost in the round of 16, but that, that, I mean, they really could have gone far if they could have gotten through that Portugal match. But um, yeah, I think that one's just like, it's just, it's just so awesome. It's so classy. I just really like that one. So that'd probably be my best shirt, the checkerboard uh, Croatia one. Okay, favorite player to watch from the match that I decided to focus on. We're going to skip that po- that uh, part of it because uh, obviously I didn't focus on a single match to rewatch for this podcast. But I mean, Antoine Griezmann really was uh, you know the standout player of the tournament, and rightfully so. He played really really well, and I thought some of the, a couple of the other French players too stood out. Um, for Portugal, I mean, their defense was great. I've never been a huge fan of Pepe. I just think he's a bit of a bit of a rascal, but he was excellent, excellent in this tournament. So I would give him a shout out for that. One random observation from the broadcast, another one that I could um, skip because I obviously did not go back and watch one of these matches. Uh, but that's something we'll kind of get to in the future and i'm very excited to do some of that stuff when it gets to matches that i own that like still have the commercials because you know if i watch a match from say or, or a game a basketball game a football game something like that from you know 1993 i mean the commercial is going to be so different than a commercial in 2021 so that part of it is going to be kind of fun as we move forward in this podcast um did the right team win the tournament uh no uh, I, I really don't think so uh i think i can kind of definitively say i don't know who the right team would have been i mean france it kind of feels like the obvious answer because they're the host and they actually do get to the final they, they came very close to winning it but I don't think there was a standout team. So again, this kind of goes back to the uh, the Euro 1986 question, right? It's like, there's not really a standout team. So it's like, okay, maybe the team that won, they just like deserve to win because, well, they're the one that won. So um, this question, it's, it's always nebulous. It's always like, I, I feel like I can kind of make it up each week, but I try to stick to some sort of principle of like, okay, which team played the best throughout the tournament? That certainly was not Portugal. Um, it might've been France. I mean, they had a couple of kind of iffy performances as well though. So nobody set the tournament alight. I mean, there was not one team that was like, oh, you know, we're going to remember them forever. There just really wasn't. I mean, it just didn't happen in this tournament. So I don't think there was a right team. So I guess because of that, maybe you could say Portugal was the right team. You know, they're the ones who came out on top. So Fair enough, we give it to him, but um, I have a hard time saying that. So I would say no, the right team did not win. Um, that's it for Euro 2016. Uh, I really enjoyed this project. This is really fun. Um, I hope this kind of change in format for this last one doesn't throw people off too much. Uh, moving forward, these these podcasts will not be as kind of personal, uh, unless it's like maybe a game I got to go to. And um, Friday on this next episode, it'll be a bit of a preview of uh, Euro 2020. And then just kind of my predictions and, you know, quickly go through, you know, some players to watch from me. And then I'll also uh, talk about the, all of the teams of the tournament and pick who, what, what I think is the best one of all the euros that I covered. So it's 15 euros. This is the 16th one coming up this summer. I'll pick my favorite team of the tournament of all of those euros. And then I also, at some point when this tournament is over, Euro 2020, that'll be 16 teams. I'm going to put those 16 teams into kind of a fictional um, group and then bracket and kind of break down what I think a fictional tournament would look like with all of the winners from the 16 tournaments. So that's something to look for at the end of the Euros. Just kind of a little side project that we'll do here on this podcast feed. But after Friday, uh, the episode that'll come out to the day that the Euros 2020, Euro 2020 starts, next 
Tuesday will be the first episode where we don't do a soccer match. I'm actually going to pick my first basketball game to focus on as the NBA playoffs are heating up. This is not just going to be a soccer podcast. This will be for kind of all sports, and it's just kind of a look back on different matches and things like that. So be looking out for that. Um, I have not decided which game to focus on, but that will be that will have a guest. My brother Austin will be on that one with me. Um, so it'll be a match that's kind of near and dear to our hearts in some form or fashion. So one that probably took place in the last... I would say 15 years. Um, but yeah, these matches, I, I mean, I have a long list of games that go all the way back to 1953. So, I mean, you're going to get stuff from all over the course of the sports world. You know, tennis matches, baseball games, football games, obviously a lot of basketball games. That's kind of, you know, basketball and soccer are kind of my things. And so they'll, they'll lean that way, but I will definitely have other sports um, represented as well. I mean, I, I'd even be willing to do a boxing match, you know, from kind of the golden era of boxing, of, of heavyweight boxing and things like that. So, I'm very excited to kind of continue this project. This was kind of to get the get the podcast off the ground and kind of get some 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 uh, episodes into the feed. So there's something for people to go back to and listen if they do like it. But um, thanks for joining me on this little project here. I've really enjoyed it, and I hope uh, you you guys have too. So join me next time as we do a preview for Euro 2020 and wrap up this Euros look back. So again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.